I ran into someone in Chile that had served a mission, and then they were no longer active in the church. And I remember talking with him, and I was in tears, and I said, why? How? Why? And I, so I couldn't understand. I wasn't raised in the church. I, I, I had no idea what his journey was. I didn't really ask him what was his reasons for leaving the church. I just was, all I could say is, why? How could you possibly? I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. That is ultimately, in my experience, kind of the way people feel, it, whether it's pity, whether it's disbelief, mm-hmm. whether it's just breaking down crying, because that is how strongly members of the church believe that it is the truth and it is what will make everyone or help everyone be happy in this life and in the next life to come so why would someone possibly not want it or leave it once they have it Welcome back, everyone. My name is Sam. And I'm Melissa. I grew up in the FLDS community. It is a polygamous group run by Warren Jeffs, and I moved out when I was 18 years old. I was raised LDS. Sam and I have been married for nine years and have two awesome kiddos. <laughs> yes, we do. If you're interested in just listening in today, we do have our podcast available, and please don't forget to like and subscribe. Also, our holiday fundraiser is done. Thank you so much for all of those who donated. We more than doubled our goal, and we are so excited to show you guys the adopter room and the process of transforming your room at the Short Creek Dream Center. So oh. we're so excited for that and look forward to that in the future. Yes. Thank you all so very much for that. If you'd like to continue supporting our cause and sharing compassion and love towards those from polygamous backgrounds, please feel free to donate below. Yes. Today we are getting into the second part of Peter Santanello's video with the ex-Mormon who left the mainstream LDS church. Our first part, if you want to see, you can click above, but it got very long, very fast. This original video is only an hour long, and I think our reaction to the first half of it was like two hours long. So... We apologize Um, for being long-winded. There was just a lot of detail. Yes, I was going to say, unfortunately, we had a lot to comment about, (laughs) or fortunately, I guess, depending (laughs) on how you want to look at that. But we're excited to get into the second half of this, and I hope there's a lot to talk about here as well. Honestly, we haven't seen this yet, so we don't really know what's coming. This is our first view, and so hopefully there's a lot to talk about here as well. Yep, we'll see. Let's get into it. All right. The church has a big emphasis in the continent of Africa, and... I think it's a good proposition for many of those people. Uh, The church is incredibly wealthy, and although the church teaches the law of tithing to these these people, which is an incredible sacrifice, the church also provides um, food, clean water, I believe education in a sense. I can see how there can be a good amount of conversion to the LDS faith. So that goes against the narrative that many people have of the church being racist, Mm. right? Trying to stay this white, pure blood, blonde haired, (laughs) John Smith type religion. Like they're, they're taking in everyone. I mean, what is that fair to say? The history is interesting. When Joseph Smith founded the church, there were black members of the church, black members who, for example, received the priesthood. Okay. A famous black member is by the name of Elijah Abel. Joseph Smith dies, Brigham and his followers go to Utah, establish a church there. And I believe in 1852, this is my opinion, Brigham Young had different ideas. That's when the racism started where that's when the 
priesthood restriction and the temple restriction started for the church. People of I'm glad that he mentions the fact that Joseph Smith did allow black people to have the priesthood because I think a lot of times that kind of gets swept away, this idea that it was always this way, that the way that Brigham Young had set it up for the blacks to not be able to have priesthood. That, yeah, I'm glad that he mentioned that. Me too. Because it's important. There are so many (laughs) theories behind this of what Joseph Smith thought, what Brigham Young actually thought, even though he came across in some of his teachings as very racist, just to be blunt. Uh, but, Brigham Young? But Brigham oh, yeah. Young, Brigham Young, yes. But people even argue that fact, that no, he didn't actually this, and he actually had good friends that were of color and different things like that. So there's a lot of theories, but the overall theory, I think he's right on with what he's saying here. Well, yeah, and another like kind of little-known fact as well, like when Joseph Smith was running for president, like just him as a person, it's very well documented that he was an abolitionist. He very much supported, you know, was very anti-slavery. He definitely, I don't feel like Joseph Smith from all the history that I know of and have like deep dive researched in, Mm -hmm. especially for his time, he was very much not racist. Right. And so it does seem to be something that came with Brigham Young. No wonder that active current members of the mainstream LDS church don't focus on Brigham Young's teachings all that much. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I think he's going to go into here in a second as to when that stopped. I I do need to point out here as well, uh, I mentioned this before, I'll mention it again, the FLDS church where I came from, they do focus a lot on Brigham Young's teachings and they remain... Very racist. Very racist. Yep, that's a very good thing to point out. Also, as far as the church becoming like worldwide, I know he's saying right now they're focusing on Africa. For a long time, they're focusing a lot on South America. Mm-hmm. And I would say that the church tends, like he was mentioning, the church tends to do very well in poorer countries or third world countries. Right. It's definitely somewhere where, like he said, their their tithing sacrifice, they actually see a lot of that come back to them and they can see the benefit like just temporally would they see the benefit coming back to them right well and it will be said that it's because they are a a more humble people and that they are more willing to receive the the gospel of jesus christ and you know that that's kind of what is being told once again there will be different opinions about that of you know why it's easier that someone joins the church from a less rich country i guess you could Mm -hmm. say not that there's not some very wealthy people in a lot of the South American countries as well. That is a fact. But but there seems to be a lot of those that are a lot more humble. Yeah. Of color, uh, black skin specifically, could not get the saving ordinances of the temple necessary to go to heaven. But in 1978, the church lifted that ban. I will also point out here that in addition to them not being able to hold the priesthood, being kept from the ordinances themselves is a completely separate thing. I, as a woman, can't hold the priesthood, right? But I was still able to go into the temple and take out my endowments and receive and partake in those ordinances. So not only were they keeping people of color, well, specifically blacks, because I think they allowed Hispanics and Polynesians before 1978. I believe I'd have so. to look into I, I, that. That is a great question. Because I wanted to say people of color, but honestly, I don't know if it was all people of like any nationality or if it was specifically just people that had black skin. 
which is just even more horrible. But that was to keep them from those covenants in addition to not letting them have priesthood authority is absolutely awful. Hmm. Okay. So it was, what's the math on that? 126 years of restriction. But in 2023, it's open on that front, right? Or no? It is, but I'll say this. Missionaries' goal today, and always has been, when they preach the gospel, they're not saying, join our church, it's good. We got great structure for families, and, you know, you'll have good associations with your neighbor. What missionaries are saying is, join this church because it is the only true church on, on the land. God speaks to prophets. All other Christian churches are wrong. We, the Mormon church, have the full gospel. And if that's the case, why was there a priesthood ban to begin with? Out of necessity, the church changed. The church should be at the forefront of change in society, not always decades behind. I will say yes and no to that comment based on my personal experience. Maybe his experience as a missionary was very much that way. But when I served a mission in Chile, it seemed that we would try to focus a lot on the family. And, uh, you know, this this is a church that will bring your family together. This is a church that will help you live a better and happier life here on this earth. And then, yes, there was that caveat as well that this is the truth. And wouldn't you want to have the truth on earth? But it was less focusing on that and more focusing on how it would benefit them, even in this life, and then, of course, in the life to come. An example is, in the United States, the Civil Rights Movement was in the 60s. The Civil Rights Act was passed into law in 1964. Why is it that the church, about two decades later, finally changed? They should be ahead of the curve. And there's argument that there's people on this land, the whole world for that matter, who never had a racist bone in their body and would, would promote and push for equality for all members of the church. But for some reason, the church for 126 years held that line of Brigham Young. I think when it comes to holding things that can sometimes, you know, like you said, be behind the curve, I think there's always this fear within the church, or at least my guess would be that the leaders would fear every time the church makes a big change because they are restorationalists and they claim to have all the truth, whenever there is a large change, there are going to be people who are upset about it. Mm. And I know there were people who were upset when it changed to not being racist. And that's always going to be the case. So anytime it's very much easier for the church to buckle down and say, no, this is just how it is. We don't change like that because this is what God wants. It's much easier for people to buy that and to give in to that idea, like that ideology, I think then the idea of this constantly changing that God, like, I, not that God was wrong for those point, for that period of time, but like that the church, they'll, they'll say that it was, oh, that's just what everyone needed at that time. <laughs> but there are going to be, be people who leave the church over every big change and say, well, was God wrong? Was the church wrong? Who is right or wrong in that instance if you're just going to change your mind? And that causes big problems. And that 
causes people to leave every time. Another one that happened was when, I mean, and this was in our time, when they put a ban on children of LGBTQ community members if the children couldn't get baptized at age eight. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge, I saw, I knew people personally that left the church because of that ruling. And they said, I'm not okay with that, Mm -hmm. right? And then it's like, okay, well, if you're putting a ban on it, then was God wrong before? Is he wrong now? And they changed it again a couple years later, I think because there was so much. But every time the church changes something, it's so much easier for them to just like stick to their guns than what Mm -hmm. it is for them to change and admit that they were either wrong or try to explain away why it was the way it was before. Right, and we're all for good changes. You know? Oh, absolutely. Like when it comes to from the outside looking in now, I mean, my goodness, anytime the church can change to include more people, to make it this better, more comfortable place for all, hallelujah, that's amazing, great. The problem that people are having is that it is the truth. God is at the helm. He is running the entire thing, and it is constantly changing And in some cases, it is changing drastically, not just adding on. It is, hey, that was wrong. Now this is the way to do it. So that's where people have the problem of, okay, well, if if that was wrong, why did God allow it during that period of time? Yeah. And so that's where it really comes down to. I mean, the, the good changes are amazing. It's just... The people have an issue when they're been when they've been taught their entire lives sometimes that this is the way and the only way, and then in a blink of an eye, it is completely changed on them. And I think as a member of the church, and I saw this in a different instance personally myself, but like in this case, for example, you know, when you've defended the, all the members of the church during this time, during the time that the blacks were banned from the priesthood, all of those church members are given reason mm-hmm. why that is so, why that's what God wants. And so when you spend your life defending racism, basically, when you defend why God wants it this way, and then the church comes out and changes it, and one week you're defending why this is what God wants, and then the next week you're supposed to change it completely, that's when it can be hard. And I feel like that's when members sometimes can feel like, I spent so much time defending this, but then it turned out that it didn't matter. Mm. And that's like, you almost feel, I don't want to say like you feel like a fool, but you feel like, why did I spend all this time defending it if it was just going to change? Right. Cool place, Todd. My understanding is there was a family that lived here 50, 60, 70 years ago. It was all farm. And so they converted their farmhouse, their house into a restaurant. And over here are fields where they grow as much as they can and use it for the restaurant. Oh, awesome. The things that they can't produce, they use local growers, even for all, you know, all the meats, you know, beef, poultry, etc. What a cool place. Look at this tree here. It must be (laughs) hundreds of years old. How about with the families, like your parents or your wife's parents? Was that a challenge? It's been a challenge. You know, uh, my family's, uh, for the most part, has been great. It was a... Uh, learning curve for them at first, but today we're in a good place for the for the most part. Sometimes it's a little bit uncomfortable. Usually, family gatherings are centered around the church or church events, okay. you know, like Easter celebrations or Christmas celebrations. It it's becomes a little bit of a challenge because of the messages that are often shared. But you're still invited. Yeah, for sure. You but, can sit at the ta- same table. We, yeah, we we have a great relationship with with my parents. Um, 
I, they, their love is not conditional. Um, they love to see us, they love to see our, our kids. The, my mom, hi. Uh, the burger man is already here. Burger man. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's a meal. Look at that. That yeah, looks amazing. Too, you know, so. This is in Mesa, Arizona, right? <laughs> wow. Looks like we need to travel Some somewhere. Some fries. Mm -hmm. Ribs, pulled pork, beans. And this is just a, a loaded burger of sorts with Gouda cheese. So you've been lucky in the sense that your parents haven't, you know, <clears throat> kicked you out of the family, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. None of that. Um, like, my parents always ask about our kids, what they're doing. Just okay. heavily great-grandparents just asking all the questions, like making sure everyone is doing good and, and you know, being loving and caring in every way. But I think there's just, there's a little bit of like, since we're not part of the church, we, um, there's just been a disruption in what has always been. Again, the end goal is to live this life to the best you can, uh, uh, complete all the ordinances of the church, and the goal is to, to get to heaven, to live with Heavenly Father again as a, as so, a family all together. So do, your, do you think your parents think you won't go to heaven now that you left? I, I, I wonder, like, but that's the, that's the doctrine. Like. When he says live all together as a family, just so you know, and there's a lot of people that have asked this question, they say, okay, well, if, if the idea is that you can all become godlike and have your wife or wives and your children and have your own world and planet and be in charge of your own thing. Why does it matter if the family's all together? So really what it comes down to is the fact that if you are not living all of these rules and laws and ordinances and, and obeying all of these things, you most likely won't even end up in the same kingdom of heaven. Meaning that there will not be a, hey, let's go visit our son, you know, and his planet over here. Let's go visit him because that person won't have access to certain kingdoms if he is not worthy of them. And that's kind of the idea that they won't be able to see their children or they won't be able to see their parents in the next life. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, you said it really well. Mostly it's the access of movement, of being able to go and visit one another. Because basically your goal as an LDS parent is if your kid gets married and sealed in the temple and then their family is planet, like if everybody is there, is God, then they can go visit each other's world. Mm -hmm. But like you said, in the lower kingdoms, upper kingdom people can go and visit the lower kingdoms from what I understand. But like nobody, if you're a child and you are no longer LDS or you're an apostate. Mm -hmm. We'll use Sam as an example. <laughs> he can't go to the celestial kingdom, so he would never be able to go visit his mother. Right. Right. And sounds familiar as it is right now. <laughs> oh, it made me sad. <laughs> well, I mean, but it's, yeah, it's just, kind of like just a, kind of one of those things where I'm trying to to make sense of it, right? Like what yeah. it would be like in their theology. Yeah. And. I think about the kind of the way it is right now with the FLDS and the fact that I'm just not welcome. And if I did just show up there, I would feel very uncomfortable because I know I'm not welcome. Mm -hmm. And and I, I, have an, I have a feeling that that's kind of what they're referring to is that you're just, if you, if you don't live a certain way, if you don't live certain standards, you're not welcome. Yeah. And then within like Warren Jess, within the FLDS teachings, he recently came out with Revelation saying... All of the 
you know, each of the different kingdoms of heaven, it's not like you're like in different neighborhoods, you're on separate planets. So there would be no way for you to be able to get anywhere else anyway, because you're stuck on this planet. Right. So, right. Like we resigned from the church, which means all of our covenants we made from baptism to all the temple has been basically null and void. Or so do you even believe in heaven now? Mm. Since you left. Good um, question, I Peter. I, I don't know. I mean, I, and I'm, I, I guess my answer is I don't know, and I'm at peace with I don't know. In my experience. I will say learning to say that you don't know things is something that takes time and is hard when you leave the LDS church because I, one of my favorite things about being a part of the LDS church was feeling like I knew had all the everything. Answers. Like yeah. I had all the answers, or if I didn't have an answer, I could easily go to the church website and find out exactly how I was supposed to think or feel on just about everything from social issues, political issues, almost everything. I could get an answer of this is what you're supposed to think. This is supposed to, how you're supposed to feel. Yeah. And so when you leave that and you have to become comfortable with, I don't know, I don't have all the answers. I have to decide these things for myself and decide what I think and feel personally without the influence of an organization. Whew, it can be really tough. Right. And it. I feel like a lot of people that do leave the church or the FLDS church or the mainstream LDS church like Todd here or like us, you know, it's I think almost everyone falls into that category of, oh, no, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know, because I thought I knew everything. And now if that's not true or if I'm not sure of that, then what can I be sure of? Yep. And so I don't know becomes the, the next step. And some people go different paths. Some people go out of Christianity. Some people go deep into certain other Christian branches and things. But but ultimately, accepting the fact that, you know what, I don't think we have all the answers on this earth. I think yeah. that's a pretty healthy way to look at it. Yep. When I was a member, you, were, you would work so hard your entire life and... Um, putting doubts on yourself that you're not doing enough, you're not good enough, mm-hmm. you're not doing everything that you can. Mm-hmm. And so there's, I think there's a little bit of a constant fear that will all, all of our family be together? Are we all doing all the things that we need to to go to heaven? There's a primary song that kids learn, and the lines are, teach me all that I must do to live with him, meaning Father in heaven, someday. So it's in the doing It's not just like, I believe, it's in the doing. And I think with a lot of members, like there's stress and worry that I'm not doing enough. They are too hard of themselves and they always kind of self-doubt and like beat themselves up sometimes. Like I slipped, I did this or I did that. And your whole life, you're just working working super hard. So like, for, like on my mission, for example, a mission for boys or men is 24 months or two years. I extended one month on my own because I felt maybe if I did that, that would be pleasing to God because I put self-doubt, like I didn't work as hard as I could have been, like on a daily basis, like when you retire to your apartment, like you fall asleep when your head hits the pillow within two seconds, that kind of like effort, you know what I mean? Delicious burger. Glad you like it. Excellent. 
Extending a mission is actually something that a lot of missionaries think about because they think, oh, why would I want to, why would I want to go home? Like, this is God's work. This is what he wants me to do. How amazing would it be if I could extend a mission? And I think that a lot of missionaries early on in their missions talk about, oh, yeah, I will definitely extend my mission if I can. I'll ask if I can extend this. And I would say most by the time the two years comes to an end, they're like, yeah, no, I think I did my two years. I think, I, I think I'm good. You know, I mean, you get to the point where, yes, you're loving what you're doing in the sense that you feel that you are serving God in the most, in the best way possible is kind of the feeling. And, but there comes a point where you, you really do miss your family, your home, your loved ones. And so it gets, it gets challenging after a while. So anyway, I just wanted to point that out, that that extension of a mission was something often talked about in the mission field. How do you go about that? Do you just tell the mission president, hey, I want to extend, and he approves it or denies it? Or how long can you extend for? Yes. Well, and I've heard of different circumstances where some missionaries extended it for multiple months, and maybe that was a need in the mission, or it was just something they wanted to do. I will say that even if you put a request for an extension, you don't always get that, depending on the situation in that mission. Or so. how much your mission president likes you. <laughs> <laughs> He's or, like, please, no, I am done with my two years with right, you. So right. time in my for you case, to head back. <laughs> in my case, my so I for the majority of my mission, I had a mission president. And then for the just the last couple of months, I had a different mission president come in. You build a very strong connection and bond to your mission president, or at least I did. I felt that I was on a very close level and had a great relationship with him. So when that swap happened, I no longer felt that, Mm. you know, and so for me, I I didn't feel any desire to necessarily stick it out longer than the two years, because at that point, I felt that after my first mission president went home that I had spent most of my time with, at that point, I kind of wanted to just kind of wrap things up as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Mm. So when you left, was there, was there like, um, were you scared? Were you scared of anybody, for example? Um, yes. Like we, we did, Sarah and I did a podcast. Oh, careful. Don't do those. I grew up like, you do not say anything negative towards a church. Mm -hmm. You do not. You don't speak out against it. You don't do anything against it. You don't. So like the first time in my life, in a, in a big way. We did that, Sarah and I did that podcast back in 2019, I think it was. Okay. We got home from it. I'm like literally looking through my blinds, you know. <laughs> are they, now I'm being kind of crazy, but this, like, I thought like the ward members around me would be very upset. Is there a vacuum that needed to be filled? Because in my research for this story, I've noticed some people seem to be doing pretty well. Others, there was such a structure, there was something so meaningful that they don't have something to fill the void with. Or they've even like gone as far to the other end of the spectrum as possible, finding a purpose or something to stand behind in politics or something else. Mm-hmm. What, what's, what are your thoughts on that? Because it's like, how do you take something out that was like, almost like an operating system, if you don't have anything to replace it with, how do you, how do you cope? How do you deal with that? I would agree. So it, uh, for me, it was a devastating loss and it made you rethink everything in life. 
because again the the church provided a complete roadmap from start to finish and so for me um, I didn't have answers overnight and it's still a journey for for me and, and my family okay uh, now I, I'm full yes 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 filling uh, the void is very tough I think everybody does that differently I think it's easier in a situation where you're leaving with your spouse you have your family like I know for us the void of like church on Sundays we just started doing more things together as a family out in nature like we were able to find activities as a family that brought us close together as a family right so there's definitely depending on the circumstance that people are in it's harder to find that for a long time even after we no longer went to church I would still go to all the Relief Society activities because I wasn't willing to give up that sense of community with women in my neighborhood, in my area, um, within my ward. And so I would still do that. I would always tell people, you know, if there were any service opportunities, like I'll be at every service project, every, especially things revolving around service. I think as time goes on, like there are other things that I've done now, like PTO at school being on the board with that there are times where i'll come home and i kind of chuckle at sam and i'm like it feels so much like relief society to me i think it's kind of filling that mm. and, and i didn't go into it thinking it would but then when you're part of an organization that is filled with women trying to help you know a school or help people or service oriented there are moments where th there'll be things that i'm a part of where i feel like okay this is helping fill the void in a way I didn't even realize I needed right. just because it is hard to lose so much community and lose so many opportunities to serve people. Right. And yes, the moment they leave, it is like this, this hole, you know, there's something, something is missing because th that was such a huge part of their life. And all consuming. And all consuming. Yes. But as time goes on r right away, it, it feels like, yes, there's just all of this extra time and space in my life now. But as time goes on, like you said, you find ways to fill that void. And in our experience, in very, in a very positive light, in a very positive way, it has been for us. Yeah, I'd say on the counterpart to the void too, a lot of times you feel a void of community or these other things. There's also a certain amount of burden that's lifted off your shoulders. Right. Because with all of that community with all of those responsibilities well with all of yeah the community and everything there's a lot of responsibilities with it typically you have callings sam had higher callings that required a lot of time a lot of energy time away from his family <laughs> away from us like i would be getting our baby ready for church by myself every single sunday morning and there's lots of things like that where also leaving there might be a void of the community there's also a lot of burden that's lifted and a lot of expectation that's lifted as well. So right. some parts are harder, some parts are easier, and yeah. Yeah, and he did mention as well that, you know, in the church you're always trying to be perfect, and so it's it's very difficult when you slip up or you're always judging yourself and this, that, and the other. And that is true to some extent, that you are always under this pressure of... People will say you're not ever going to be perfect, but you're, you you need to try to be perfect. And... To, be, to, try, to always be trying to be perfect, it can be good in some ways, I guess, but in other ways it can be very, very stressful and very difficult when you're consistently not quite reaching the mark. Yeah, because you can never really reach the mark. Right. <laughs> we'll hope and we are, are, I think for us, we're constantly learning um, to be even more compassionate, 
more loving and more um, open to other people's point of view and their experiences. Okay. My wife is studying to be a family and marriage therapist. She wants to okay. give back. Great. In the short term of things, I'm helping special needs kids going to, to taking them to school, and I find that go. super That's awesome. rewarding. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. You know, so. I guess that's what I was saying. If you can be that person who finds positive things to fill it with. Exactly. I think that's when you can end up feeling the most fulfilled. It's when people aren't able to find that next thing to be able to like feel like they can replace the service and the aspects that you really love about the church Mm -hmm. that it can be a lot harder. Right. Um, So you're finding purpose through other missions that help help people out. Are you and your wife are both in I think joy is found more than ever in like helping humanity being a human yep. and and love unconditionally yeah without an agenda without the uh you know in the back of your mind you're trying to like share something or convert them to something because i at this point i don't know the answers of of life and i'm at peace with that there's 17 million million members of the church and there's i think 8 billion people on the earth and so if you do the division, the mathematics on that, I think it's like 0.002% of the world's population is, is Mormon or LDS. The basis of the church is they're sharing what's called the plan of salvation, where God created this plan before the world was so that people can go through these steps to become like him. Mm-hmm. And it's just the thought came to me one day, Mike, Wow, at this point, the church has been in existence for 100, whatever it is, 250 plus years. And the early leaders of the church would state that on one hand, Christ's coming is near. And on the other hand, they would say, we're going to fill the earth with the gospel. But then I think, wow, only 0.002% of the world's population identifies as LDS. That's not a very good uh, ratio, you know? It's very low. (laughs) I think people will look at that differently. Like some people will say because the Book of Mormon is available to the world Mm -hmm. in almost every single language, like hundreds, like over a hundred languages, like almost every single language, that that means that the gospel is available to the entire world. So people look at that differently, um, whether or not everyone is ever supposed to be Mormon or LDS, you know, a lot of the LDS faith and the FLDS is that there's going to be work done in the next life too, that Mm. Christ's coming is not going to be like the end to missionary work or the end to spreading the church, you know, globally. So I don't know. I remember what, so coming from the FLDS church where at its peak, it, you know, was just over 10,000 members coming in and then being introduced and joining the LDS church, I felt like the LDS church was the entire world, right? <laughs> like, I mean, especially... It's around the entire Especially world. living in St. George, Utah, I was like, oh, everybody's LDS. Like, you know, and that's just kind of the mentality that I had coming into it to then go out into other countries and other states and realize that, you know, that it wasn't that. That wasn't the case, that there were a lot of people, most people are not LDS, it was almost shocking to me to realize that. Yeah. And anyway, but I think a lot of people that are raised in the church as well don't realize what a small percentage of the world the LDS church is because it's their entire world. Yeah. It's, it's everything, right? Well, and because there are missionaries all over the world. So because, 
I think right now there's like, what, 70, 80,000 missionaries. Because there are missionaries in every country, you do feel like, okay, well, it is a global church, technically. There are members in almost every single country in the world. So therefore, it feels very global. And when you're sending missionaries off to all these remote places, you're like, look, we got this all over the world. And you're not really thinking about okay, there might be a couple missionaries there, but how how many actual members are there compared to the entire population and right. the places that the missionaries can't go and stuff? So you don't really focus on that. You're mostly, I'd say as a member, you're focusing on the fact that we're sending missionaries to all of the countries and whether or not they accept it wasn't kind of our responsibility. Our responsibility is to preach throughout the entire world, not to make everybody members. Well, and, th- and this 17 million, right? Uh, yeah. 17 million members. That also doesn't include, to my knowledge, the those that are active and those that are not active members, right? No, it does include. It, so does. it includes the inactive members as well. That, that, that's my point, is it's not separating, it's not saying there are 17 active members of the, 17 million active members of the church. No. It's saying there have been 17 million members baptized into the church. Yeah. So just taking my, my mission, for example, in Chile, I mean, I know for a fact that the majority of people that were baptized in my mission during the time that I was there are now either less or inactive members of the church. I think active membership is like, what is it, a quarter, like 25%, 30%? Right. So of the total, yeah. Anyway, and some of those inactive people will still identify as members of the church, but some of them will not. Some of them will say, oh, no, I'm not a member anymore. And so it just depends on... But they're not taking their records off, so the church is still going to count them when they say they have 17 million members those people are still going to be on the records if they don't go and get their records removed. Right. And the same goes for other churches as well. Like, I'm sure the Catholic Church has records of all of their members, and a good majority of those probably aren't actively attending every service in that. That's that's just kind of the way it goes. It's not just the LDS Church. Yeah. But anyway, I, I man, I could go on forever. They're, just the feelings that I had joining the church, coming from such a small church— I thought it was the whole. I thought it was the whole world. The whole world was Mormon. That's that's kind of the idea that I felt. You got some missionary work to do. It's just, or God is all powerful, all knowing, and it, let's say Christ came on the earth today, only a small fraction of His people like would be worthy or good enough to return to His presence. So like, that's kind of a crappy plan. You know what I mean? So, in the Mormon hmm. world, what would happen to me? Well, how would they how would they view me? So in the Mormon world, you're gonna go to the spirit world and there'll be missionaries there. So you have a chance there mm-hmm. to learn the gospel. Um, and as a as a current non believer, yeah. I die, I have a chance. Right. Okay. Now the fact that you're doing this documentary and the fact that you're talking to me and, and the others, <laughs> like you're on kinda loose ground already because you've been telling all this stuff and you're choosing not to uh, become a member. And let's say you don't become a member and you die. But I will say this has kind of changed within the church back in the day. Or like I know when my dad served a mission, the idea that if you had the opportunity, like if you were presented with the gospel and you chose not to become a member and to not accept the gospel, once you've had that opportunity, that was your one chance and you wouldn't get another chance. It was mm-hmm. like you had your chance, you didn't accept it. They've really changed that narrative. I know when I was like oh, being yeah. raised through seminary and stuff, it's like, no, if if they haven't accepted it, you know, God knows what's in their hearts, they're going to definitely have a chance. So there's definitely more this idea of like, everybody's going to have another chance, everybody's going to have another chance. Back in the early days of the church, 
prophets and um, or even just missionaries would do. It's called like dusting off their feet. Isn't that what it's called? Uh, d- 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 not dusting, shaking off their. <sighs> I forget the word they use, was, but something along those lines. Like if people would reject the missionaries, there was this basically a. I wish I could remember it, but basically they could through priesthood power, through the power of God as they believed it, in a way, kind of like curse that person and dust their or shake off their feet. It has something to do with their feet, but meaning this person had an opportunity and they rejected it and they're sealing the fate for that person that that person won't have a chance on the other side. Yeah. And that was something that was done in the early days of the church with the early missionaries. If they felt like someone really had a chance and they and they weren't accepting it, basically through priesthood power, they were like, you're not going to have a chance on the other side because you're rejecting me. They don't do that anymore. No, Did you ever don't. hear of anybody doing I, that? I was told in my mission, and I don't remember if it was, who it was from, but I was told by somebody in my mission that we weren't allowed to do that. Okay. There will be no shaking the dust off of your feet on the doorsteps of people that you don't like. That's what it was, shaking and, the dust, yeah. And and be meaning that, hey, I I don't know if you want to use the word curse, but you are you are in a way sig- signifying them. earth in the earth and also in heaven that this person had their chance. And that's kind of the way it used to be is it's now or never. Mm-hmm. Now now is your chance. It's now or never. And now it's turned into, and you'll even hear apostles uh, from the church talk about, you, you can always be forgiven. You can always come back. You always have the opportunity. So that narrative, that idea has definitely changed over time. Yeah. And I think along with that narrative too, there used to be a lot more emphasis on if you left the church, then you were a son of perdition. Mm. And that used to be emphasized a lot more heavily too, that leaving the church made you a son of perdition and then you go to outer darkness, which is like beyond the worst heaven. And by leaving, and I think they specified that as not only just saying, hey, I don't want to go to church, but actually denying Denying the Holy Holy Ghost. Ghost. That was was what would turn you into a son of perdition is denying the Holy Ghost. But a lot of like earlier leaders and earlier church members took that to believe that like, if you had felt the spirit confirmed that the church was true... Mm. And then that's a confirmation of the spirit. And then you then leave the church. You're denying what you felt. You're denying that Holy Ghost. So that's like, I remember my dad telling me that's what he was taught. Like, And I had looked it up before because when my dad left the church, when we were full believing, I looked up to see if I I was like, is my dad going to be a son of perdition? And I went through the church manuals, the church manuals that they would teach from in Sunday school and stuff. And Mm -hmm. it was a little bit more like that, where it was pretty clear, like, oh, yeah, my dad would be considered a son of perdition. But then recently, in more recent years, they've kind of changed that mentality where to actually fully deny the Holy Ghost would be like you would have to see God, you would have to see Jesus Christ and deny him, that it would have to be so clear that it was a knowledge instead of faith anymore. And so basically no one can deny the Holy Ghost Well, define see, define see Christ, I guess, because everyone has their opinion on that as well. See yeah. him with your spiritual eyes, they... actually see him. But but yes, it's definitely... Uh, we no have... one talks about sons of perdition anymore. Basically, they're like, it's almost impossible to be a son of perdition. <laughs> yeah. So there's hope for us. So there's hope for all of us. Thank goodness. In the spirit world, you'd be given another chance to accept the, the gospel, become baptized, do all, do all the things. So if I don't do it there, then what happens? I go to hell? Then judgment day will come. <laughs> the way Peter says it. Um, then what happens? Matter of fact. Sent to four different uh, kingdoms. Outer darkness, which is for the super bad people. Murderers, those who... Uh, oh, you, oh, do you deny the Holy Ghost? Ah, there we go. Um, a little rusty. 
Then there's, and that's for the super bad people. Really bad. That's where Satan dwells, I think. And then there's three kingdoms of glory. There's uh, celest uh, celestial is the top, celestial, and then terrestrial kingdom. And so the, the judgment bar of God will determine which of those kingdoms you go to. He said it mixed up, but they all still are kingdoms. It's celestial is the top, terrestrial, and then telestial. telestial. And so telestial is the bottom of the kingdoms, right? It's like, you know, these aren't, these aren't really good people going there. These are kind of the bad people. That these aren't are, murderers, these are, these but not the, good. Yeah, cheaters, these are the partiers. Liars. These are the partiers, the cheaters, the liars, the, the people that just uh, didn't really want to follow any rules any rules, and, and, and do what God asked them to do on this earth, right? But Joseph Smith said, if you could see the glory of the telestial kingdom, which is the bottom glory, then people would be killing themselves on this earth to get there because it is so much better than this earth. Yeah. You, you can't even comprehend how amazing that is. So, you know, that that's the telestial. So then above that, you have the terrestrial, and then the celestial, and then different degrees of glory in the celestial. I can't really read yeah. time enough <laughs> Maybe we can in put, that as well. We did a video on the different kingdoms of glory and the heavens. So we can put that link above if anyone wants to check out more information yeah. about the different kingdoms. And I think we have a video on it like the LDS point of view, and the FLDS, because the FLDS have a few more specifics added in there. Right. The goal is celestial, because that's where you become God, and you'll be dwell with God. The other two, I think God visits, but what's troublesome is maybe some of your family is going to be in the celestial, and you won't see them. So there's some motivation to do all you can to get to the celestial. And in the original teachings, now not the LDS church now, they've changed, but the fundamentalists believe to get to the celestial, you need three wives. Oh, good point. So <laughs> the founding fathers of the church, the prophets and apostles, yeah. Brigham Young, for example, they taught that in order to get to the celestial kingdom, you must enter into plural marriage. Yeah. Now, the number of wives, I'm not sure, but it's more than one. Mm -hmm. Um, now, yes, and that is once again that, to my knowledge as well, the three wives thing. I don't know where that comes from. Yeah, there's I, a lot I, of groups that believe it, though. There's a lot of people that believe it, and it must have been something that one of the early prophets said. But I was never taught that in the FLDS that it had to be a certain number. I was just taught that you had to. You didn't even necessarily have to have multiple wives, but you had to believe in and fully embrace the plural marriage and the celestial law, as they would call it, in order to reach the celestial kingdom. Yes. And within mainstream Mormonism, like in the LDS church, I was taught that the celestial law is the sealing ordinance. Mm. So that can be plural, but it can also be monogamous. So I was never taught that like you're going to have to be a polygamist in heaven, that the celestial law was that you were sealed to your spouse in the temple and that that's the importance of it. And then there are people obviously who do have plural marriages that can also be sealed. There are people who like the current prophet of the church, Russell M. Nelson, he was sealed to both of his wives. So in the next life, he should have both of them still sealed to him. So he's in a plural marriage and he right. will be in the eternities because he's been sealed to both. So it definitely have to accept plural marriage in your heart, I guess, and accept that that's going to be okay on the next side. You can't just believe that like, 
you know, plural marriage is a sin and nobody should ever do it. You have to accept it on a certain level, but you don't have to practice it is what I was taught. But don't worry, feelings of jealousy will be gone in the next life. So it should be fine. That's changed, to be clear on the record. So the history is the the U.S. government almost brought the church to their knees for practicing it. And so I think the third prophet in uh, put the kibosh on it. They stopped it. Fourth. Fourth, yes. But another interesting fact is polygamy technically still occurs in the Mormon church today. Also, when we're correcting and saying these things, it's like, we're not trying to be harsh on him. You have to remember two things. One, in the mainstream LDS church, we're not taught a lot about polygamy to begin with. Right. So if that wasn't one of his shelf items that he went and like did a deep dive in research, he's not going to just know a lot about the polygamy within the church just naturally through regular church attendance. Right. Isn't going to be something. And when, when we say fourth, even that statement isn't 100% true because the fourth prophet of the church didn't technically kibosh it. Yeah, but he know, wrote the first but, manifesto. But he but he signed the manifesto saying that we will no longer enter into plural marriages. Yeah, and I will also say, again, with him talking about the heavens and us like just kind of correcting there. Another thing to remember too is that when people leave, a lot of times when they leave the religion, like we are talking about it constantly and mm-hmm. we're constantly gaining new information about fundamentalism and about Mormonism and all this because that's what we talk about and do on this YouTube. Most people that leave the church, they're just kind of leaving that chapter behind and they're trying to move forward. So someone asking them about all like all sorts of theological questions about this, it's going to be easy to not remember every single detail, especially ones that didn't matter that much to you about your exit. People tend to remember the things that matter a lot to you. He had a lot of details on tithing. Maybe tithing was a big shelf item for him. How many wives or exactly the kingdoms in heaven might not have been. And so he's going to just move on past that and not remember everything perfectly. And that's totally okay. So just want to point that out. And (laughs) dun, 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 right? So, um, Let's say, and this is the privilege of a man. So let's say I'm a member of the church. Let's, and I'm, I'm fully a member. My wife dies. Sad. And we were still together. Okay. Okay. I have the opportunity to marry another woman and be sealed in the temple to her so that if we all live faithfully, we will live forever in the Sussex kingdom and I'll have two wives. Okay. Or, or more technically, if, if that second one dies. Okay. So, um, President Nelson and President Oaks all are on their, I think their original, their first spouse passed away and they're sold to their second wife. So, technically, in a spiritual sense, and many others are practicing polygamy. So, in the afterlife, they'll have a plural marriage. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, okay. I would, I mean, the, there's lots of problems with this, but one of them that screams out at me, let's say for me, my wife, we're still in the church, she dies. She won't have any say on me marrying another and, until it's already done. Okay. And it won't be until the afterlife. So I think a lot of this is you, uh, within the, the teachings of the church, there is no say with women on what happens. They don't have autonomy. They don't have any choice in a lot of different things. And that's one of them. All real decisions yeah. are made by men. The First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve, 
mm -hmm. um, down to the local level. Sure, we have um, organizations where the children's organization, the, um, the leadership are women. Okay. And then there's an organization for young women, so there's leadership there. And then for uh, adult women, there's another organization, there's leadership there. But true decisions um, in terms of the church are being my men and just certain callings like being a secretary for the bishop or a financial clerk for the bishop or a membership clerk for the bishop uh, by design are priesthood callings and priesthoods are, are only held by men. And just to clarify, not only has he written this, but like the primary presidency that over the children are women and young women's and Relief Society. However, they all have to have a priesthood authority above them. So they can make decisions in their presidency, but they are not the top of the, if you want to say, food chain at all. They all have to have, um, everything has to be approved by a man that holds the priesthood. Right. So, so in a local sense, the bishop mm -hmm. or the stake president, and then from there, you've got the headquarter callings. And yeah. Things. So it's not, and granted, on a local level, every priesthood holder or position also still has a priesthood head above it but you'll never like there's always going to be the chain of command up because it's very organized right but at the end of the day he is right in the fact that there's no women's organization that goes or uh, woman leadership that doesn't have oversight from a priesthood holder because you have to have that priesthood authority over all women and children yeah be interesting to see if that ever changes yeah, I mean, women are becoming more involved in certain things like state con or not state <laughs> state conference as well, which is more a local thing. But general conference, which is held twice a year for the church members, uh, there's becoming more involvement from the women, whether it's talks over the pulpit or prayers, things like that. They are becoming more involved. So I'm curious to see how things change over the years. Sometimes it also depends. It also <laughs> yeah. depends on the session, because I believe it was the last session I was watching a thing where they were talking about statistically, like they were doing better about that and having women be more involved. And then like this last conference, it was like barely any women again. Hmm. And so that's, I mean, that's a whole other thing we won't yeah, get that's, into. That's another but topic. Yes. Even within uh, women's callings, there's still always men above them. Help with the collection of tithing money and some of the local expenses. Okay. Uh, under the uh, supervision and direction of the bishop. Um, women can't do any of that. Um, but looking back, it's silly because what if, I, I'm sure there's well-qualified women who are maybe are accountants by trade who can do a phenomenal job, but because... So they're not allowed to do that right, at it's, all? It's, Is that nationwide or just in... Nationwide. Okay. When you were in the church and you heard of someone leaving or knew of someone leaving, what did you think about them? <sighs> I would be guilty of not like trying to understand on a personal level in a in a truly empathetic level their journey. You wouldn't think oh, that's a loser, just a non-believer, they've gone off the rails. I would say I would think in, internally I would have like pity. Pity's the word I'd think of. They're not holding on to the rod, the iron rod where you helps you stay righteous and close to God. It's from the okay. Book of Mormon. You're not on the path to righteousness. I don't think I would overtly say things, but I think I would be guilty of maybe thinking it because this is kind of how we were wired. 100% pity is the perfect word that I would use. I always felt pity on people who left. Um, a lot of times you'll hear people say that they're sad, sorry, you know, oh, they're so sad for you. Their heart goes out to you because 
when you're raised in it, you're told that anybody who leaves can't live a truly happy life. They'll never feel as happy as what they did in the church. And so they're choosing a life of sadness and, and sorrow, and they're not going to have the the support to be able to get through hard times or the blessings. They're not going to have the same blessings, so their whole life is going to be less than because of it. And so even though I would never say that to anybody, I think there was always that sense of pity of like, oh, you gave up like this amazing life you could have and you just gave it up for a lesser life. How did you feel? Oh, boy. Honestly, I was just in disbelief. I was when we're referring to the mainstream LDS church, FLDS church was a whole different topic. <laughs> but when I, as a new member in the LDS church, recently baptized, not too long after that, I was on a mission. When I found out that someone left the church, especially someone that had served a mission before leaving the church, I literally broke down in tears. I could not understand how someone could possibly, like I was just in disbelief. And I remember running into someone in Chile, and I think I wrote home to, to my family about this. I ran into someone in Chile that had served a mission, and then they were no longer active in the church. And I remember talking with him, and I was in tears, and I said, why? How? Why? And I, so I couldn't understand. I wasn't raised in the church. I, I, I had no idea what his journey was. I didn't really ask him what was his reasons for leaving the church? I just was, all I could say is why? How could you possibly? I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. And, you know, and that just goes to show how, I guess, lack of information and knowledge that I had at the time. And also just, I guess, lack of sympathy for other people's journeys. Because all I could think of was the way I felt in that moment. And, for that reason, I couldn't put myself in his shoes. I just, I had no way of even trying to understand. I just, I couldn't believe it. What was his reaction when he saw you like that? I honestly think I scared him a little bit. <laughs> you know, I think that he was, he just said, yeah, I'm sorry. This makes you feel so bad. It's just the decision that I felt was best for me. And like I say, we we left that interaction with me just completely... I don't know. I, it, it was a, it was tough on my faith to see that someone could possibly do that. Yeah. And I'll say now that we've been on the other side of that, where we're that person where people will be like, oh, I'm so sorry for you. I feel mm-hmm. so sad for you. And they're distraught. And it's so hard to know that like your personal belief system can affect somebody else's emotions and feelings so much is so... It's hard. It's sad. You don't want to make people sad. And you don't want to make them sad over something that's such a personal choice. And so it's hard to see people take your choices in such a um, in such a hard way. It's it's so tough. Yeah. And that's I guess the reason I wanted to share that is because that is ultimately for in my experience, kind of the way people feel whether it's pity, whether it's disbelief, whether it's just breaking down crying, because that is how strongly members of the church believe that it is the truth. And it is what will make everyone or help everyone be happy in this life and in the next life to come. So why would someone possibly not want it or leave it once they have it? That's kind of the ultimate idea behind it. Yeah. Um, again, those those negative messages from leaders like they're lazy. They, they must have been offended. 
you know, all, all that kind of thing. Yeah. So <laughs> the them being offended, I think when you're in the church, because you can't fathom why somebody would leave. It's mm-hmm. like, I can't even imagine why someone would choose to leave this. And so there's like a couple go-tos that people use as excuses when they don't want to have to ask. You don't want to ask the person who left because you're afraid it might hurt your faith. That's scary. You don't want to deal with that. So then you put them into these categories. They've been offended or they wanted to sin are basically, you know, the two, or like they said, or lazy learner, I guess that would be the third one, right? Like they either didn't search hard enough for answers to their questions. They didn't do the work. They weren't putting in the work. You know, people will always ask. I know that when we had our faith journey, you know, people, are you reading your scriptures? Are you praying? Are you doing all the things? Because if you're not doing all the things, then it's probably your own fault that you can't find answers to your questions, right? So Mm. you're not doing all the things, you're being lazy. And then that you want to sin somehow or that you're offended. And even recently we were sharing with someone and a newer friend and they said, Oh yeah, I'd had lots of family that left because they were offended by things that people had done. And, and they didn't even know that we had left the LDS church. And we shared with her like, Oh, well we left, but it had nothing to do with any of that. It was just doctrinal. We don't believe the same doctrines. And, um, but we have lots of love for people in the church and you could tell like the shock on her face, like, on her face, she was like, oh, like in her mind, she hadn't met somebody who left the church that it wasn't because of them being offended or having a bad experience with someone within the church, that it was doctrinal. And so, yeah, I thought that was interesting because it's easy to categorize those couple things because those can make sense to right. someone in the church. Being offended seems to be the, the number one go-to. And I remember as a mission or as a missionary and also back from my mission, just serving in callings within the church, when visiting inactive or less active members, a lot of times we would ask, you know, did did something happen at church? Did someone offend you somehow? Because that seems to be a very common one. Yeah. What would you want, if there was one thing you would want people of the church to know, or like one main point you'd like to bring out? I would say... Um, if someone that you love, family or friend, decides to leave the church, go, uh, go have an honest conversation with them and ask them in a sincere way, like, what, what led you to leave? I, like, and out of, like, out of love and concern, ask that question. Because I think oftentimes, and I've spoken to many people about this, is they feel deserted. I think members are conditioned, unfortunately, again, by top leadership that we're dangerous. Um, we can't be trusted anymore. There's just constant messages like that that teach members to be nice, but stay your distance, you know? And we're just like you. We're just like you at one point, and nothing has changed in that regard. We're and you don't look down on them for still believing? No, I mean, for, for many, I understand why. I think for, for many, and I understand it, that the cost is too great for some of them to leave. Like, but many in it still, like a lot, I, I've met with a lot of Mormons the last few weeks. <laughs> some great people. Like, I met some great people. And you never know what's going on inside someone's head. Yeah. But there's different degrees to it, too. Like, you know, I, I'm technically Protestant. That's how I was grown up. Now I don't practice, so I can be called Protestant, but I don't partake so much. I've met some Mormons that are like, 
really putting a lot of time in every day. I also met some that are like, yeah, it's my belief. It's what I, but they're not, I, I wouldn't say like, you know, to the grindstone with it. And I see how it's a great mold for, for many people. This is my outside. Sure. Do I want to be part of it? No. Do I want to be part of any organized religion? No. It's not my jam. Like, so it's not going to work. No one's going to sell it to me. But I, can, <laughs> I, I try to respect everyone and, and not judge at all and not think my ways are right and their, their ways are wrong. So, I mean, isn't it fair to say, like, some people, though you, you've read the truth, in your opinion, the truth, they just need to find that, but maybe they're happy in the world they're in, and the world they're in is the best place for them to be. That's a fair point, and I, I, I understand that. And I'm not, I'm not here, and many of people who live are not here to pull people away. Okay. I'm about, like for the church, for example, especially for new converts, to be transparent. Tell the good, the bad, the ugly, everything from the church history until, and to what you're doing today, and, and don't hide behind it, and don't try to cover it. And then once the individual knows all of it, all the information, then you can decide. Okay. I yeah. mean, I believe in um, transparency and in, um, informed consent. That's a big one because yeah. I, tr I strongly believe that it's not there. It hasn't been, and it's still not there today. <laughs> I will say along with this, I know we had said it before, it's hard for people that have been raised their whole life to teach everyone the truth. It's hard sometimes for ex-Mormons to not go and try to teach people this new truth that they believe they have. But to Peter's point, just kind of going against Todd a little bit here, playing devil's advocate, if there isn't transparency and the church is to a new convert, a more... I don't want to say watered down. If they don't know all the deep doctrine, if they are lighthearted about it and to them, it is worshiping Jesus Christ, having personal revelation, having a prophet that teaches them how to be a good person. If it is the surface level and that is all they learn and that is what makes them happy, then don't they have the right to be able to access that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Maybe they don't need the deep doctrine. So because when you're raised in the church, you're taught that the deep roots matter so much, that that's when I feel like that's why there's so many people leaving now is because you can't get over the idea that all of the history and all that stuff matters. Right. But to somebody who's new, that might not matter to them. It might not need to ever matter to them. They might not even care that the church was racist in the past. Well, it's not now, so I don't care. Exactly. And that might be good enough. And you have to, at a certain point, respect everybody's journey in accepting what they do. And again, that's hard for people who are raised in it, especially with the way the church used to be, this idea of like black and white, and we're on the right side, and you need to be on the right side of the fence, and you can't be a fence sitter, and you can't have it both ways. Like I know for me, a lot of things are so black and white, and there are members of the church that I'm friends with now that will go and drink a coffee, you know, and I'll be like, oh my gosh, like, but that's against the word of wisdom. And they're like, well, but that is how I interpret, you know, that's how I interpret. Or I, I don't feel like that's necessary for me to be able to still live my covenants. Right. And while that's hard for me with the way I was raised, that might not be hard for somebody else in the way that they were raised. And they might feel okay with that. And they can still be good 
Mormons and do things the way that they feel is best. And coming to terms with that has been a little hard for me. Well, not hard, but like it's been a new experience being more accepting of the spectrum within Mormonism as well. And I think that something that we could see in all religions today, it well, most, I, I don't want to say all, just, just in case, but most religions today, including the LDS church, we know people that have joined the church and became better because of it. Yep. You ha- we have to admit that. They, be- they became happier, they became better because of it. We also know people that because of the church or things within the church, they became not as good, not as happy. Not as kind. Not as kind. Yeah. Uh, more judgmental. Different. So every individual person needs to find that in their life that will make them and help them be happier, kinder, more understanding. So that looks different for every individual person. And so that's something that we have to see here. And for those that are leaving the church, it sounds like Todd seems to be okay that people are still a part of it. But for those that are leaving and trying to rip everyone everyone out because they don't think that that is what they should be doing, that's just, just something to remember that for that person, it might be what's best. For this person... Like Peter, obviously, for Peter, the Mormon church is not, is not what's best because he says he that's not for him. And mm-hmm. so there's no point in trying to force someone into something if it's not what will make them happy. Yep. Every a person, because, again, look, look at my life. <laughs> you will devote everything to the church. Your time, your talents, and your money, everything to the church for your whole life. So that individual deserves deserves to know everything the church needs to be transparent and the individual is entitled to um, or deserves informed consent to decide yeah i agree well todd thanks for that yeah not easy to tell that story i'm sure yeah it's challenging it's tough but it's a story that needs to be told the hope is just to have mutual understanding for the members that stay for the members who leave okay so great no, appreciate it. Yeah. Give you a handshake here. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And guys, this is part of a greater LDS Mormon series. I have three other videos of people in the religion that seem to love it. Two stories about fundamentalism, which is totally different than LDS. But I wanted to show that difference. And you. Yeah. Someone that's left, and I felt that was an important component to this series. Thank you. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. No, it was fun. Thank you. Awesome. Okay, cool. Yeah, man. It was fun to get to go on this journey with you all. I know that so many people have had more questions about what we think and feel about having left the LDS. Some people didn't know that we had left the LDS. Honestly, we take that as a compliment every time because we never want to be bashing against the LDS church. So it makes us happy when people are like, I didn't realize that you had. I'm like, good. (laughs) But it's been fun to see and, and react to this. And hopefully you guys learned a little bit more about how we think and feel and yeah yeah it's been amazing we we thank peter for all of these different series it's been great to see different perspectives different views and the scenery in all of these places as well has been fun to watch so (laughs) thank you peter and thank you todd we really did appreciate and enjoy this video hope you all enjoyed going along with us as well and we look forward to talking with you soon we'll talk to y'all soon